Navigating the Storm, Episode 5. Don't tell me to relax. I'm Anna Knight. I'm a personal development coach and a seasoned survivor of life storms. You can find me online at my website, annanightcoach.com, or in my Facebook community, Port in the Storm. On this podcast, I speak to women and non-binary people about their real lives, how they got to where they are now, and the issues they want to see change or make change in their lives. While I'm not going to turn down Elizabeth Banks if she messages me, the people I speak to on here aren't necessarily famous. They've all, however, brought new thinking and new inspiration into my life. Today, I'm talking to Heather Waring. Heather and I became friends through a mutual friend of ours, we started bonding over geeking out about Strictly Come Dancing and musical theatre. But over time, we've come to talk about some of our shared experiences and around deeper topics too. So I'm really honoured to have Heather here to share her intensely personal journey with fertility issues and with IVF. This is something that affects about 15% of couples. And while we might know someone that has had issues after the fact, As Heather says so eloquently in our conversation, it's quite often a hidden journey. So today we're going to open up the conversation about fertility issues. Whether you're experiencing these issues yourself, or if you know any other humans of child-making ages, then it's an important topic to be familiar with. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. My pleasure. Could you just introduce yourself for everyone listening? I'm Heather. I am a civil servant by trade. Um, I suffer with polycystic ovarian syndrome. um, And as a result of that, I've been on a sort of fertility journey. um, And I'm an IVF survivor. I'm fortunate enough to have a little boy. He's about 18 months old now. Um, so tell us a little bit about your beautiful son. His name's Douglas. Yeah, he's he's our, our little IVF miracle. Yeah, he's great. He's sort of walking around. His favourite word is more at the moment, which is just great. Uh, so yeah, he's keeping us on our toes, uh, which is just brilliant. Did you always know you wanted kids? It's a strange one because I think I was diagnosed with my condition in my early 20s. And at that point... I didn't sort of think, oh, you know, I'm going to find it difficult to have children or I might not have kids. I just sort of thought, oh, okay, that's a part of my life. Cross that bridge when I come to it. Um, And didn't really think about it until I was at a point in my late 20s when I was married and, you know, I wanted to have kids. And I think then at that point, maybe a little bit of doubt started to creep in. It's weird because I, I don't know if retrospectively I did feel this way but it feels like at the time I maybe had a bit of anxiety about it you know I don't know if I had a gut feeling that maybe I was going to find it more difficult than your average person or whether retrospectively it just feels that way looking back on it but yeah I think at the time it wasn't really a concern you know I, I, I don't think until it came to the time when we wanted to try and have kids it really became but I just sort of assumed you know at some point you'll have a child and it'll be fine and It'll be a new part of your life and you'll continue to develop and it's only when you sort of actually get down to it as it were that 
you think, oh, okay, this is more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I think I had a, a sort of similar experience in that I had a doctor tell me that I probably had fertility issues when I was like 17, I think. And at the time I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, like that's a thing. But it is, it's as you hit those different stages in your life that you then have that reevaluation of going like, oh, wow, that's what this means. And I think like nowadays as well, because a lot of women are sort of more career driven, you maybe don't think about it in your 20s. It's when you get to your 30s and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, now is the time that I want to have children. And then you have this sort of long journey of going through all the different problem solving, the troubleshooting trying to find out what the issues are mm-hmm. and you know I was 32 I think when my, my little boy was born um, but we'd been on our journey for sort of two two and a half years by that point when you're sort of in your 20s as you say you don't think about it it's just oh okay that might be a problem but I guess you get the sense that time's getting away from you a little bit but you don't really feel that in your 20s it's only when you get to your 30s and you think oh okay this might be a bit of a problem it really sort of becomes a bit more prominent I guess or at least that's how it felt for me Mm. and so you mentioned that you had IVF what was that journey like for you it was quite a long journey I mean I think we as I said I, I have polycystic ovaries um, and I was diagnosed with that in my early 20s and at the time I wasn't sexually active and the doctor sort of said ah, we'll just put you on the pill and then you'll have a period every month and that sort of regulated my cycle so for several years I didn't really think about it because you know I was having these monthly periods but then once we were married and we wanted to sort of try and start a family I came off the pill my cycles weren't especially great they were sort of roughly every six weeks but not really so trying to hit that sort of sweet spot get the right point in the month where I might have been ovulating was quite difficult I think that puts a lot of stress on the relationship when you're sort of trying you feel like you have to do the deed even though you're not particularly in the mood that sort of extra level of pressure doesn't create for a particularly amorous environment (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, it becomes a bit too business-like Yeah, exactly. And that's really stressful. And, you know, I think people deal with that in different ways. I think when you think about, or maybe you try not to think about um, your sort of friends trying to get pregnant, you just assume that they're just at it like rabbits all the time. But actually, it's a really sort of stressful and and difficult process to go through. You know, you start your month psychologically psyching yourself up and you think you've got that sort of sense of excitement. This is going to be the month. Um, but the stressful bit in the middle where you're trying and you're quite determined and then you've got another sort of hopeful stage and the longer you're waiting for your period to land the more sort of you think oh maybe this is it and then sort of towards the end of the month you get that crushing devastation of it's not this month it's not happened again you know that sense of anxiety is it ever going to happen for me personally sort of that determination picking myself up again and thinking right okay put that month behind you next month that's the month we've got to focus on so we went through that for about nine months before we decided to to speak to a doctor and try and get some tests done try and find out if there was anything more we could be doing or whether you know we were at a point where we needed medical intervention Mm. um i think because of my pre-existing condition they maybe fast-tracked us a little bit. You know, we'd only been trying for nine months. I know a lot of couples are told you should be trying for two years, which when you think about it on a monthly basis, that is an incredibly long time to be getting your hopes up and having your hopes dashed and starting again, picking yourself up. It's 
psychologically really quite a taxing thing to go through. I think we were lucky that after nine months they were sort of happy to put us into the system and, and get us started with the tests and the process that took us towards IVF. Yeah, it sounds like a real emotional roller coaster that each month you're going through these intense emotions. Did you have any coping strategies that were helpful for you in that time? You almost have to sort of go into that self-preservation mode and I found that I gave myself a free pass to avoid things where I felt I was going to be either vulnerable or upset um, as a result of the circumstances. You know, I missed christenings, I missed baby showers. Um, I sort of gave myself a pass in that I didn't feel I had to explain myself to people sort of said oh sorry I can't make it or I'm busy that day you know I didn't say I'm gonna find that too difficult but I think just recognizing those triggers for you as a person recognizing what is going to make you feel upset or uncomfortable and feeling that you are able to say to yourself I'm not going to put myself in that position I think is really important and it took me a long time to get to a position where I was happy to do that where I felt comfortable saying no to things and not feeling guilty and that I was letting someone down Yeah, I love that boundary of going, you know, this is going to hurt me. I give myself permission to do that. Like sometimes it's really hard for us to give ourselves permission to make those choices where we're putting ourselves above others. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, it took me a long time to get to a position where I thought, no, do you know what? I'm going to put myself first here. But I think when I did, there was like a sense of relief that, you know, at least that was one thing I didn't have to worry about. You know, I didn't have to worry about crying at someone's baby shower or painting a smile on my face at someone's christening when I just really didn't want to be there Mm. Um, and I think people you know from an external perspective they they don't think that's as weird as it maybe feels to you (laughs) yeah something I find hard you know you think oh I've just said I can't go to your baby shower and now you're going to be thinking why and what's going on and what have I missed but actually people just think oh okay they can't make it and then they move on with their lives because I think people are thinking about themselves and not you whereas you think they're thinking about you sometimes or at least that's how it felt in my head for a long time. Yeah I think when something happens no matter what it is sometimes it's not the actual situation it's the story we tell ourselves in our head that like you say that everyone's going to think it's weird everyone's going to be trying to work out what's wrong with me and actually people are more likely to be wrapped up in their own stories and just go oh Heather can't make it today it's cool. Yeah yeah exactly. I think I found it quite difficult and there's one time that stands out in my mind especially I was in London I'd been on my works Christmas due the night before we'd stayed over in a hotel and the following morning I got up and I had my period and I had to go into the office and go to all of these team building meetings go meet customers and I just did not want to you know I was especially devastated that month I was away from home I didn't have my husband there I just wanted to sort of curl up in a ball and cry and I had to go into work and put on this professional face and I think that's the thing about infertility you don't know who's dealing with it because it's a lonely road and everyone just has to or feels that they have to get on with it on their own you know I didn't really confide in anyone at that stage you just sort of got to put your your best face forward and and deal with it on your own Um, and that's a really really difficult thing to have to do and I think the thing that struck me since I had my IVF since I've had my little boy I've been relatively outspoken about my treatment partly with a sort of selfish view to I don't want people to be asking me when I'm having another and actually through being quite outspoken I I really haven't had that I've maybe had one or two people ask me I think that you know when you're on that journey and you're on your own you don't feel like you can speak to people that's really quite tricky 
through speaking about my experience i've been amazed at the number of people that have come out and spoken to me about their experience and you know these are people that are actively dealing with infertility at the moment i think i know maybe five people who are based on the same floor as me in the office all who are dealing with infertility and they've only felt comfortable speaking to me about it and opening up as a result of me speaking about my experience so i think that's why i'm sort of keen to raise awareness and to speak to people about it because I think by speaking about my experience even if I can help one person feel less alone in their own journey then that is worthwhile yeah and I totally know what you mean about it being that big unspoken thing I think there's this like you say you don't know who's going through that journey who's then getting bombarded with the so when are you having kids question that's actually quite painful but I think also, like for me, I've found this roller coaster of emotions as well of kind of being child free, not by choice, and all my friends having babies really easily and having those moments where it's like, wow, I'm so happy for you, but I'm actually really sad for me and how to balance that, I think is really tricky. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I think I was really lucky in one respect because I had a friend who had been through IVF and I knew that she'd been through that journey. So just having someone that I could sort of turn to, because as you say, it's not that you're not happy for other people, but you're sad for yourself. I have to say that's something that never leaves me. That is always with me, you know, even now. And I know how lucky I am to have my little boy. But if I see a pregnancy announcement on Facebook, my stomach drops. It's like, I don't know, almost like an instinctual thing now that I want to protect myself from that, even though I have my little boy. It's still just always there. And, you know, whenever I see a pregnancy announcement, I find myself wondering whether or not that person has had an easy journey or a difficult one. Um, I just, I can't help myself from thinking about those things. Yeah, it's almost that kind of programming that that journey takes you on. Yeah, I think so. But as I say, you know, having that sort of support network when I was on my journey... I think was invaluable just having someone there to say you know no you're not a monster for not feeling entirely happy I think was like a sense check that I personally needed Um, you know I've had friends tell me that they were pregnant and I would literally get off the phone and be in tears I couldn't turn around to them and say actually it's quite difficult for me to hear that because I hadn't told anyone about my difficulties And I I certainly wouldn't begrudge anyone the happiness of having that baby. But at the same time, when you're in a position where at that point you can't or you don't know why you can't, that's just a really difficult sort of line to walk, being happy for other people, but being so sad for yourself. And I think it's part of that pattern as well of a lot of us shy away from talking about the uncomfortable emotions we're feeling. There's that vulnerability of going actually I'm not okay is something that can be really scary yeah yeah so once you'd made that decision to go down the IVF route was that harder easier than the stage before I think for me it was easier because I'm quite a sort of analytical, methodical person. <laughs> I, I like to say that anything that I can plot on a Gantt chart is happy. <laughs> and I think with IVF it, it's quite a sort of stringent journey. You know, you, you do this injection on this day, you go for this scan on this day. So in terms of a process, it's very sort of methodical. And, mm-hmm. and I think for my mind that worked a lot better rather than just being like, oh, I might be ovulating today. Do you think we need to try? Should we leave it? I'm a bit tired. I'm a bit stressed. We've had a really busy day. But sort of the structure of, right, take this tablet, 
do this injection, go to the hospital at this time and they'll scan you and they'll tell you what the next step is. You sort of have to think about it one day at a time and I think that element of it worked a lot better for me. It was a lot less stressful to just think, right, I've done my injection, I don't have to think about it for the rest of the day. I think I felt almost a sense of achievement going through it as well, you know. I never thought I would be the kind of person who would be fine to do my own injections. And I did, and I was sort of proud of myself for that. I think every day it felt like a minor victory. You've got through today, you've done your injection. It's sort of one step at a time in the process. But I think at that point, it moves a lot faster as well. You're not going for these three-month appointments and then just kicking your heels, waiting for the next step. I think when I started my treatment, so I had to take an additional set of medication to force a bleed before I started my cycle. I think I got my period on the, it was something like the 8th of February, um, I had my first scan on the 9th, I had my egg collection on the 20th of February, I had my transfer on the 27th of February. On the 10th of March, that was when I did my test, that was when I found out that my treatment had been successful. So in the space of just a month, I'd gone through an entire five-year process and I'd gone from having that forced period to being pregnant and knowing that I was pregnant. It's sort of mind-blowing how quickly it then progresses when you're used to these three-month waits and the sort of tumbleweed and you're just waiting around for something to happen. So I think that element of it as well was much better for me, sort of on a psychological level. It felt a lot more like progress than, than it had in the past. Yeah, and I don't think I'd ever realised that the actual cycle itself is that rapid. I think because the yeah. process is drawn out so much before it, in my head it was actually really long and drawn out itself as well. Yeah, I know. It's really quick once you get going. So they treat the day that you start your period as day one of your cycle then. So by t- day 21 of that cycle, they've sort of done the egg collection element of it. That was probably, I guess, the most invasive element of it. You're sort of sedated and they basically go in um, and they draw the eggs out of the ovary um, and extract them that way. You're sort of sedated, you, you don't remember it. And <laughs> my husband said that when they brought me back, I don't remember any of this, but the nurse came in and helped me out of the wheelchair and into the bed. I don't drink. Um, I turned around to her and said, I don't drink. Is this what being drunk feels like? I have no memory of saying that at all. Um, When you go through pregnancy, a lot of people tell you to leave your dignity at the door. I think after IVF, I sort of felt a bit more resilient in that respect because I feel like I'd already long since left my dignity at the door. I was fine with that. And what was being pregnant like for you? It was a bit of a weird experience because I think I still felt the effects of infidelity in that I didn't really want to shout about it, I didn't really want to fuss, I didn't feel personally that it would have been sensitive to other people who I knew who were still on their fertility journey. So I didn't make any public announcements, it was only people who I was close to, it was only once my little boy had been born that I felt able to sort of relax and and to share that with the wider world really. And even then I think I felt a sense of guilt. I'm a reasonably guilty person at the best of times, but I think I really felt a sense of guilt for people who were still on their journey. I I didn't feel that I should be adding any more hurt for them by sharing my experience and and sort of, I know it wasn't rubbing it in that I'd had a successful IVF cycle, but I think it still felt that way a little bit to me. I think, as I said before, the psychological impacts of infertility for me have been quite long lasting and that's something that I think I will always carry with me, this sort of sense of awareness of, of what it feels like to be childless and, and to want to have a child and to not know if you will ever have a child, not even when, but if. 
I think it's really, really difficult. And that's something that stays with me even now. Mm. One of my best friends had IVF to conceive her daughter. And when she was pregnant, she talked quite a lot as well about the anxiety of it, that that journey had been so emotional for her and such an up and down thing that she'd kind of created this belief that something was going to happen, that her baby was going to be stillborn or that something could still go wrong for her. And yeah, it really strikes me that it's not that case of, well, now I'm pregnant, everything's fine in my world. There is still that emotional process that continues, like you say, like your son is 18 months now, but you're still feeling that emotional side of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think throughout my pregnancy, it very much felt one day at a time. And when you hit that sort of next week milestone, you think, right, that's another week down. But I don't think you take anything for granted, even quite early on in the process. So when you have IVF, you have an eight-week scan. Normally, you'd have a 12-week scan and a 20-week scan, but they do an additional early scan at eight weeks. So even when I went for that, I was expecting the worst. I was expecting it to be bad news or for maybe even them to say there's nothing there. So I, w- I was amazed when um, she sort of scanned. It's an internal scan at eight weeks because it's so small. They can't see it externally. And she looked at the monitor and then she looked at me and she just said, one baby. And I, I just, yeah, it, it's amazing that sort of feeling that you even up until that point believe that it's not going to happen and every scan felt like another milestone you know right okay we've had that scan let's wait and see what happens at the next scan it's so one day at a time and you're absolutely living it in the moment because you're so worried that something's going to go wrong it was only when my my little boy was born and he was in my arms and he was breathing and he was healthy you know they say 10 fingers 10 toes don't they Mm. that I really felt like actually this has happened this is actually finally happening yeah so you had that moment when he was born of being like oh my god it's a baby yeah yeah and then you know it, it, it's sort of a whole new world of now i have to now i have to keep it alive and figure out what to do with it water <laughs> it and feed it and figure out how to change a nappy and you know all of those things that i think you've protected yourself from for so long you've not allowed yourself to think about and then you're just sort of thrown into that world and that's a whole new learning curve Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know you still feel so sort of sad and that sense of longing for the people that you know that are still on that journey as I say I, I still know a lot of people that are dealing with infertility and you know you, you sort of you're in the same club but you're not and you always feel like there's sort of that elephant in the room of, but your treatment worked and mm-hmm. I don't think that those people begrudge you anything but it still feels that way a little bit inside yeah as you were talking, I had another a moment of realisation of there's the, the pre-birth side of it where we don't talk about those things. But I think as well, like mums, particularly at the moment, they're under so much pressure to do everything and do it right and not mess up their children that actually we don't talk about the realities of what being a mum is like either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no guidebook. And I was in hospital overnight when I had my little boy because um, I'd had a tear. So I went home the following day. So, you know, I've got this one day old baby. I haven't figured out breastfeeding yet. I've got no formula in the house. Um, I can just about walk again. And it's right off you go. Go home. <laughs> it's your problem now. And, you know, I, I would have rather been at home than, than in the hospital. But at the same time, I just remember feeling quite dazed in the early days. You know, mm-hmm. you're sort of worried about keeping this tiny human alive. I think a lot of babies 
after they're born, they lose some of their birth weight. So my little boy was, um, he was quite a big boy when he was born. He was £9.6. But I think in the sort of subsequent days, he dropped to £8.2, which is quite a big difference for a brand new baby. So the sort of extra pressure on, on myself, you know, I was putting on myself, I really wanted to breastfeed. But the additional pressure of then trying to get him back up to his birth weight was a lot of sort of additional pressure that, you know, no one talks about. Everyone tells you breastfeeding's easy, you know. When you go to antenatal classes, they tell you that, you know, when the baby's born, they do skin to skin, they put the baby on your chest and they will automatically find their way to the breast. And that is not the case. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah, it makes it sound so simple, like, oh yeah, baby's got this, like... No. <laughs> no, we got there in the end, but it was like a, an extra level of perseverance and pressure that I put on myself to do that. And as you say, you want to do everything right. You want it to be perfect. And the reality is that it's it's not perfect. It's not one size fits all. And whatever you're doing, you're doing an amazing job. And I think that's that's really important to say because I don't think it feels like that at the time. Mm. You feel like you're doing everything wrong and, you know, oh, he's crying again. And, you know, is he hungry? Do I need to change him? I don't know. Yeah, and when I'm coaching women, one of the things that I often say to them about events in their past is, like, you did your best with the resources you had, and if you'd have had more resources, you might have done differently. But with the amount of time and energy and money and your mental state, you're always doing the best you can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it doesn't feel like that at the time. Yeah. It's easy for someone to say that, but for you to actually feel it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think retrospectively, I can see that now. You know, we did the best in the circumstances and our little boy's fine. He's, he's on the 98th centile now. He's absolutely fine. I breastfed for a year and then he wanted to stop, so I took my leave from him. I think if me, 18 months ago, met me now, she'd be amazed. I don't think she'd think that I would have ended up the way that I have. You know, I think the sort of strength and resilience that I recognise in myself as a result of motherhood and as a result of going through that infertility process is something that I never would have imagined. I think a lot of the sort of reading I've done around happiness and positivity talks about looking at the reverse gap rather than looking forward at what you want to be. Mm -hmm. Look at how far you've come and that's something that I try to encourage you know the people that dial into the, the support group that I run in, in my workplace to do look at how far you've come, look at what you've learned, look at how you've grown as a person, because I think that is one of the positive things about this journey. You know, the sense of strength and resilience that I've developed, the ability to speak my mind. You know, if someone asks me now if I'm having another baby, I will tell it to them straight. And I definitely wouldn't have done that when I was struggling with infertility originally. Yeah, I think that's so true for all of us who've been through hard journeys to get where we are, is that you can you can look at yourself now and still see that massive gap of where you want to be. But when you look back at yourself two years ago, four years ago, six years ago, that growth is so huge. And yet we don't often give ourselves credit for all that changing we've already done. And I think that's really important because it's not just about that one moment in time, but it's about the journey. It sounds really cheesy. But it absolutely is. And giving yourself credit for how far you've come, I think, is, again, a, a really important coping strategy for continuing on to where you want to get to. Mm. So you mentioned you run a support group. What advice do you have for other people who are on this journey? I think identifying your triggers and thinking about your coping strategies is really important. The support group that I run 
We talk a lot about coping strategies. We talk about identifying the situations that are going to make you uncomfortable and trying to avoid finding yourself in those circumstances. But if you do, you know, do you and your partner want to have a a code word that means I'm a bit upset or I'm feeling uncomfortable? Can we change the subject or can we leave? Things like that, I think, are quite important. I think identifying who you feel comfortable divulging to is another important one. You know, there's numerous online forums where you can talk about infertility issues. You might feel more comfortable doing that and doing it anonymously, or you might have someone in your life who you feel comfortable confiding in. I think that is really important to ensure you have that support network, someone that you can vent to, you know, if you've had a difficult day, if your cousin's just announced that they're having twins on Facebook, if you've been out for a walk and all you've seen is people pushing prams, just having that sort of support network and someone to turn to. I think the other thing that I would say is if there's anyone listening to this who isn't going through infertility but knows someone that is, things that are helpful to say you know saying things like oh i knew someone and they said that they did this and that worked isn't awfully constructive it might feel like it is but it isn't you know telling people to just relax again not helpful (laughs) just chill just relax yeah i remember and i hope my mum doesn't mind me mentioning this but she said to me because they took four years to conceive me and she said it was only when she relaxed and and her exact words were i thought bollocks to it i'm getting a new sofa um and then she got pregnant but again i think taking your experience and putting it onto someone else isn't awfully constructive. I think the most constructive thing for me, and this came from my friend who'd already had IVF, is to say, I hear you. I can't begin to understand what you're going through. I'm here if you need me. I think that was the most constructive thing for me. You're there. You're there to listen. So if there is anyone listening who hasn't been through infertility and would like to know how to act around people that are, I think that is the sort of takeaway that I would recommend. And we've talked a lot about your journey as the mum. What's it like for dads? Is there support out there for dads who are on this path? The support group that I run, it's predominantly women that dial in. And I think that dads, again, that's a different issue. And that is an issue that I think there's even less out there about. You know, my my husband's quite different personality-wise to me. He's a lot more stoic, a lot more pragmatic. And I think he took that sort of monthly disappointment a lot better than I did. And then he wasn't just shouldering his own sort of disappointment in his own private way, but he was shouldering my sort of meltdown every month. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that's difficult because the problem was at my end, you know, with my polycystic ovaries. Um, I think it was probably a different experience for him. But the stress of having to support me on top of dealing with his own emotions probably wasn't very easy. And I think that's something at the time, looking back on it now, I failed to acknowledge. And, you know, it was very much about me and what I was dealing with and my condition that was causing this problem for us. I mean, don't get me wrong, with the IVF treatment, it was much more on my side, you know. I was the one that had the injections. I think he had a few blood tests and and specimen tests, but most of it was me. I had the egg collection, I had the embryo transfer, I had all the internal scans, you know, the the pregnancy, the childbirth. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, certainly what I got from him was that feeling passive, feeling helpless in that experience, Mm -hmm. it can often be quite stressful because there's only a limited amount as a man that you can do to support your partner in that experience and I think that in itself is quite difficult and something that is quite rarely acknowledged Mm. and I think particularly so many men like their love language showing their caring is to do something about the problems like that inability to fix it I imagine can be 
quite frustrating at times. Yeah, I think a lot of the focus around infertility is focus on female infertility. When actually male infertility problems are just as sort of common and um, just as important, just as difficult to fix as, as female ones. And I think that the literature shows that there's a rise in infertility rates. You know, the Office for National Statistics report on birth rates in different areas of the UK, and that is falling. You know, there's sociological factors. I think women have more career paths now, so maybe they wait longer to decide to start a family and fertility starts to fall when you're in your 30s but I think the sort of lifestyle factors as well that potentially have an impact but yeah that that sort of rise in infertility just doesn't seem to be talked about very much the other thing related to that is that um, NHS funding for IVF and other infertility treatments is less prevalent now and that's sort of falling over time certainly in my area we're really lucky we're given three NHS funded cycles of IVF in some areas it's two, some it's one. In a few areas you don't get any NHS funding for IVF. I know someone that moved halfway across the country, sold their house and, and, and moved to be closer to an area where they would get a more generous IVF funding. It is like a massive factor, I think, and one that, again, isn't really discussed. And I think a lot of people, because of that, then turn to private options. So I know quite a few people who've spent tens of thousands of pounds to conceive and again I think the impact of that is something we don't really think about when you think IVF you think NHS in the UK but when people are spending 20,000 pounds to have a baby that's a huge impact on that whole family unit as well yeah yeah it's a massive commitment and it it sort of makes me angry sometimes when I think about it because it feels like privilege is dictating whether or not you can have a a child in that respect mm-hmm. you know I, I know people as you say that have spent thousands and thousands of pounds I also know people that can't afford IVF and are having to wait and save up and are sort of conscious that time is ticking and you know they're not getting any younger but they simply can't afford treatment yeah wow well thanks for sharing so beautifully and openly with us today Heather I've really enjoyed chatting to you it's been good to sort of share that experience and hopefully you know if there are people listening in that position don't ever feel like you're alone you know there's resources out there there's people you can speak to you're not on your own you're really not this conversation as I put this episode together the thing that really struck me again and again is community whether your challenges are about your fertility or something entirely different I don't think you can understate the value of having people in your life who really get it who can witness your experience and offer up their own experiences too when I started Port in the Storm my Facebook community that's exactly what I wanted to create Sometimes I think it's easier to open up about vulnerable topics with strangers on the internet and online definitely opens up the pool of people that we can reach out to. If you're struggling with something at the moment and you're longing for someone to talk to, why not come join us at Port in the Storm? You'll meet some lovely people and have a safe space to connect about the topics that matter to you. Next time, we'll be talking to Dr. Nikki Ramsgill. 
Dr. Nikki, or the money doctor as she's known online, is a medical doctor and a money coach, and she now helps women from all over the world to improve their mental health and well-being through getting organised with their finances and building wealth for the future they truly deserve. If you've got stuff around your finances and money makes you shiver, you won't want to miss this one. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mel Robinson. Mm-hmm.